this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of The Wolf Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Waz, a.k.a. Wosni Lambre. I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, my comrade, Fernando Villa. Yeah, I, I was practicing that, y'all, before the show. I wonder how many people out there know that my real name, like my full name is Fernando instead of just Nando. Not, 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 not many. Not many. Yeah. But today we have a very special guest, our first returning guest yeah. to the program, our brother, man, our, you know, our insurgent, <laughs> the revolutionary Daniel Bessner. What's going on, um, DB? Hey, Waz. Hey, Nando. Thanks for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be back and honored to be the first returning guest. Yeah, you get a belt. Ah, you get a yes. belt. You know, you're going to walk out, yes. you know, and go like... You know, one of these. Then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was yeah, The Rock, yes. right? I think that was The Rock who used to I do mean, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Every was, wrestler no, um, does that. Yeah. Hogan used to do yeah. it. The Rock used to do something uh, to his ear. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people. Uh, okay. Right. He's the Rock yeah. invented Hogan The Rock was, was people's Hogan. eyebrow. It was Hogan. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. The people's eyebrow. Socialist. <laughs> yeah. He was a socialist. I mean, when, when The Rock runs, I mean, it, we like, it should be a project for the Woke Bros, for Jacobin, anyone on the left to like infiltrate The Rock's inner circle. And teach him about like Marx or whatever, anything to get him to the left because he's gonna run for president and he's gonna win, yeah. um, no matter yeah. what yes. he says. You know, so we need yes. to we need to get him on 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 the left. It's just we cannot lose him to the too right. Too good looking, too well liked to not win a popularity contest. Yeah. Um. So just a couple of house cleaning items. Last we're taping this on a Wednesday afternoon. Last night, Tuesday night, me and Nando recorded our very first. Woke Bros Live on the Stereo app. Um, Stereo's a dope new app where it's just basically conversations. People tune in. They send us their own voice notes. We read them on air, answered questions. We got into, you know, how to simplify Marxism for your normie friends. Um, We talked about uh, a myriad of things, open marriages. We talked about so many things on last night's episode. Please go check that out. How many sexual um, and, partners and, uh, please, is appropriate for a woman? 
Yes, we talked about the body count, the infamous Twitter's most evergreen content body count for women. Um, black Twitter, anyway. I don't know about DB's Twitter, but my Twitter. I've never seen been... it come up. That's so funny. Oh, I, yeah. No one has ever talked about it. I think people would be afraid of getting canceled. Yeah, you know, honestly. Like, I mean, I was terrified. I mean, when yeah. I when I, I didn't in when our... when was uh, when the question came in, you know, because it's like a voice note. When the question you came in, I was no. I was also confused. I was like, "What is what does this mean?" I had no idea. And was is like explained to me, and yes. just the, the, the blood Nando drained out of my face. Heard of the term body yeah. count. Yes. Like, oh God. Um, but anyway, please, if you want to um, listen to Woke Bros Live ever again, please go to the Stereo app, stereo.com backslash Big Waz. Please sign up. It's really fun, really easy. We had a we enjoyed ourselves in the sense that people who normally listen to the show tuned in, but also people who are just roaming the Stereo app tuned in and checked us out. Um, we just had a great time with this. So please go check that out. Sign up right now if you want to listen to Woke Bros Live again. Stereo.com backslash Big Waz. Okay, on today's show, our friend, our special guest, DB, wrote a beautiful, glowing book review. If by glowing, I mean he took a glowing dump all over by Barack Obama's <laughs> memoir. Um, we're going to talk Spoiler about alert. that because that was... It, it it gave me um it gave me so much joy in my heart to read it, but also of course as always with anything Barack and his presidency related gave me a little bit of sadness too. Um, but first, man, the first time you came on the show, DB, we talked about the potential for an insurrection, like a real one though, right? <laughs> with this Trump administration, um, we talked about all of these new appointees, all of these things he was trying to do at the 11th hour to subvert the will of the people. But ultimately, he failed miserably, landed on his face, egg on his face. They're impeaching his ass over it. All of it. Again, which whatever. We're not doing impeachment talk today. But um, DB, can you just talk to the people briefly about what it is you were worried about that you guys were sounding the alarm in your work in the in the days preceding the election, what ultimately happened and why it failed so miserably? Sure. I, I think it's important to start from the beginning because my perspective ultimately comes from the fact that the far right is obviously horrible um, and obviously against everything that I stand yes. for as, as, as someone yes. who believes in civil liberties and, you know, anti-racism and, and socialism and all of these things. Um, but my fundamental position comes from the fact that the far right doesn't pose what I would call the structural threat to the American Republic, that they're not really able to overtake institutions. They're not really able to, you know, seize power to, mm. to more, more importantly, they don't have the support of the uniformed military without which a coup mm -hmm. is not really possible. So though I do think the far right is, is, uh, is definitely capable of performing what I would term, um, singular acts of spectacular violence, right? Like the shooting at the Pittsburgh, um, uh, synagogue or the shooting at the at the club I believe it was in Orlando and and thing or, or you know Charlottesville or things along those lines like anti-black anti-semitic um, all of these sorts of things they're not really they don't really pose a structural threat mm. to the republic so that's what I think so if you believe that the far right truly poses a structural threat you would have a different reading of this event so I just wanted to say that's where I come from and given that exactly um, I think <laughs> that the most important threat to, to civil liberties, to, to freedom, to, to ordinary Americans is- uh, Hey, puppy! Yeah, this is Vera the dog. She's yeah. a little annoying, but she's here. Um, but I think the- A dog annoying? No, no, she's, no she's, way. she's great. She's Never perfect. Heard of that. She's perfect. Um, but just to say that given that, I think that we actually have to worry about who, who just entered office. 
um, and who actually <laughs> controls the levers of power within the American state. And that's people who've been trained in the last 20 years, who've lived in an environment of what I would call an a, a, um, environment of crisis or an environment in which security trumps everything. So what I was worried about was that um, overreacting or overinflating the actual threat posed by the January 6th riot would redound to the benefit of people who want to in- increase surveillance on ordinary yep. Americans yeah. or mm-hmm. increase, you know, or take the quote unquote war on terrorism home. And you've actually already seen that probably most significantly with Joe Biden appointing a domestic counterterrorism expert to the National Security Council, right? Mm. And so when every time the NSC meets, there's going to be someone there whose whose portfolio is domestic terrorism. And as we all know, when you're when you're charged with doing something, you have things to say. And so when that person's at this meeting, they're going to be um, talking about domestic terrorism. And I I was worried and and continue to be worried that that will be used as an excuse to increase government power, to increase surveillance powers, to decrease um, the civil liberties that that Americans enjoy and have, which have been steadily eroded since uh, 2001. And people have to remember, we still are technically living in a legal state of emergency where the, the executive, you know, the president, who is really kind of an elected king, has enormous authority to do what they want. And so I was worried that Joe Biden, particularly the people he will support, will use the excuse of January 6th to, to negative ends. You made a point on Twitter. Yeah. And I do. Sorry. Want- yeah. Go you, ahead, I, I ahead, just want to clarify something because you made a point on Twitter that got a lot of blowback uh, from from a lot of people. Um, and I understood what you were trying to say. And I understood the point that you were making. But you were saying that, you know, piggybacking on what you were just talking about, that the far right doesn't pose a structural threat to America. I mean, they're, they're, they're awful people and scary and whatever, but they don't pose a structural threat that you are more worried about the structural threat that liberals uh, pose to America than you are the far right, which is was interpreted by a lot of people as saying like, you think liberals are worse or whatever than people on the far right, which is like a weird way of looking at it. You're like, can you can you expound on that point? What you mean by that? Um, sure. Liberals have more power. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Short in the short answer is a short answer. Yeah. Yeah, liberals have more power, but also I think people took it to read like liberals equal Democratic Party, um, and that's not quite the case. What what I would argue is that since 1945, um, liberalism as an ideology has triumphed. Right? If you think about like fascism, communism, they they. Um, they promote different ways of organizing society, right? Fascism organized around a central leader, a very controlling state. Communism organized around theoretically at least communal property and things along those lines. But liberalism basically um, believes in in a type of um, commitment to private property and and a commitment to civil liberties. But what happened over the course of the 20th century is that the challenges posed first by fascism in the 1930s and then communism were perceived to be communism in the late 1940s has essentially led liberals to um, close their imagination. Uh, And a scholar named Judith uh, Schlar, S-H-K-L-A-R, has referred to to the so-called liberalism of fear. And her argument is that liberals fearing these other ideologies have essentially narrowed their political imagination and have essentially... um, uh, confronted the world as one that's incredibly dangerous and incredibly uh, incredibly anti-liberal. And so what they need to do is essentially control politics. Because if they don't control politics, then the, the masses, you know, ordinary people who they believe to be ignorant, and this was very much taken up after Trump won. You saw like all the mainstream liberal magazines basically calling ordinary Americans stupid. Uh, they need that governance and policy needs to be protected from ordinary people. And I think that's what's really defined American governance, how the United States actually governs 
since 1945. So what I was merely saying was that I think that sort of liberalism, that sort of liberalism of fear, would be strengthened by overinflating the threat of January 6th, playing into this emergency politics, which I might add, we are still living in. Mm. And so if, if you actually care about freedom, however defined, silver liberties, um, you need to be aware of this. And of course, we also need to be aware of history. And what actually happens when the American state gains power is that they, uh, they basically oppress um, African Americans, they oppress other minority groups, and they oppress the left. And this has been true since Woodrow Wilson arrested Eugene Debs during World War One for being insufficiently pro-war. It's been true since the FBI went after the Panthers in the 1960s and SDS in the 1960s and various other left-wing groups. And so if history teaches us anything, it's that the government will use those powers to stamp down on progressive, however you want to define it, organization. Hmm. Man, that was so beautifully said. I could tell you've had to um, school a lot of knuckleheads on all of that stuff. And I do want to say this, too, to people. Um, look, if if Donald Trump, if the election had came down to just Pennsylvania or just Nevada or just um, Arizona, they would have gave it to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Know that for a fact. And, but they've done it already. For what? Yeah. Bush did it already. You know, that, that's just mainstream republicanism, right? And if you right, want to criticize right. mainstream republicanism, I am there with you. But that that yeah, is we all get that, that is that it's been is done. not yeah yeah that is not, not nothing a, a new. It's not like a new threat yeah. or anything like that. It's kind of yes. By the way, Kennedy you know, stole the election look, in nineteen sixty too. Yes, he too. did, and he was he was a great elite liberal. <laughs> You know, basically before Barry, he was the last elite yeah. liberal um, to ascend to the president. Just quickly, one um, quick thing about the Kennedy thing. One yeah. of the reasons Nixon didn't challenge that is that he likely also stole votes in Southern Illinois. Oh, hell yeah. So it's like, <laughs> so this is like, so everyone talks about the Kennedy thing. True. But right. also the reason it wasn't right. challenged was because the other party right. was doing the same exact right. thing. Right. It's like, uh, yeah. you know, well, <laughs> we're playing the same game here. And so we just wanted to give the people a quick refresher on that because I, I think we tend to have a sort of worldview on this show that can seem so radical to some of our listeners because they are nice liberal people. And so, the, you know, to hear like, well, liberals are anti-democratic too. <laughs> they they just don't want to hear that. And I think it's important that we take steps painstakingly as they may be to explain our positions um, to the people who listen to the show because we want them to understand what we're where we're coming from. And even if you don't, if you disagree with us and you might be like, well, maybe we think um, there's, you know, some finer nuance point as to why X, Y and Z is so um, just that people don't think we're flaming um, crazy people, even though we kind of are. And just quickly, um, if people are interested yeah. in this, there, there's a lot of books on it. Uh, you could read Ira Katz Nelson's book titled Fear Itself. Uh, and also my book titled Democracy in Exile. Yes, sir. It like really goes yes, into sir. the details of how this came to be. When I was a kid, shit, cereal was breakfast. Almost every damn day. I'm talking about five to six times a week, cereal was for breakfast. Even when I grew up, I went to college, I was eating cereal for breakfast and for dinner. That's how crazy about cereal I was. I remember my parents used to bring home, sometimes my dad would get the wrong box, the one that was unsweetened, like the regular ass cornflakes or Rice Krispies. And I used to take literally a jar of sugar and just shovel it on top and then pour the milk on there and mix it all up. And at the end, you get this sludge, this sugary sludge. After you're done with cereal, you just 
sucked it all up and and was high off sugar for a whole goddamn day. But you know, as you get older, you realize that's not right, man. <laughs> you can't have all this sugar. It's not good for you. But guess what? What if I told you I got a cereal that'll take you back to your childhood? It's got all that sweet goodness that you remember and you loved and you cherish. But with zero grams of sugar, I'm not lying. 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly. It's gluten-free. It's grain-free. It's soy-free. Low-carb and GMO-free. It's Magic Spoon, baby. Get you the variety pack. You got four flavors. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. I'm telling you, if you remember your childhood, Toucan Sam or whatever the hell his name was, it tastes the same. Tony the Tiger, get out of here. It tastes the same. E.T., Reese's looking ass, it tastes the same. I'm cuckoo for it, that weird-ass bird that was kind of like a heroin addict. It tastes the same, but no sugar, only 4 grams of carbs, only 140 calories, 13 to 14 grams of protein. What do I tell you guys? I tell you very simply, go to magicspoon.com slash B-O-M, grab the variety pack, try it today. And be sure to use promo code BOM at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. Listen to this. I want to say it again. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Where in life do you get a guarantee for your happiness? That is what these good people at Magic Spoon are doing. They are that confident that you're going to take a spoonful of this, put it in your mouth, and you're going to be like those people in the commercials. Your eyes are going to get wide open, and you're going to smile, and you're going to look at your significant other across the table and go, oh, oh, you know the look I'm talking about. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash B-O-M and use the code B-O-M to save $5 off Thank you, Magic Spoon. Moving right along, want to get into um, <laughs> want to get into your book review of Barry's memoir. Which what what is it called? Uh, a promised land. <laughs> a promised land. And he is the promised land, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into it right into it because I, I want to hear all of the things that you had to say because I, I thought you just nailed a lot of it. Um, first I want to say that in like the first paragraph in the first sentence of your article, you said that Barack Obama believes in America, which is true. And I do want to say deep, like I, I feel you 100%. And I know that he does feel this way because one to run the campaign that he did, you have to, to be who he is and to run that campaign, you have to believe in this country. And two, to have won 
running that campaign. Your belief in this country has just been reaffirmed in such a way that it's so personal to you and your experience. Like, so I get it, Barry. I get, <laughs> I get why you have rose tinted. I get it. It's also the opening it's bullshit, line in The Godfather. I, I believe in America. <laughs> just the, I see what you did there. Facts. So, <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, Bessner. Um, please tell us why you wanted to review the book, even though I have my suspicions. You, you like us, read the blurbs, and your blood fucking started curdling and, and boiling. <laughs> but tell us how you came to the idea of even doing a, um, a yeah, book review. It's a very book. long book, so you had to, you know. Yeah. I remember when you were reading it's it. It took, it took a while to read it. It's a long one. Yeah, I think it took like 10 or 11, uh, 10 or 11 days for me to read the entire thing. Um, I mean, I basically uh, wanted to read it because I think it, it, it was really um, interesting in light of all the administration memoirs that had come out right after Trump was elected. There's there's so many memoirs written, written by the Obama administration that essentially tried to structure and frame what failed in their administration and, and what led to Trump. And of course, everyone wants to know what Obama himself thinks. And, and Obama is also a really intelligent guy. I mean, he's a very thoughtful person. He's a very good writer, if a bit florid. I mean, I guess that's a presidential memoir game. But, you know, I wanted to see what he had to say, especially given that Biden had won the election. Um, and so I wanted to see, you know, how was Obama framing his failures and what that might say about liberalism in the in the in the um, contemporary era, because I do believe liberalism is going through a crisis. I, I think that there's less buy in um, for type of mainstream American liberalism than there's ever been in my lifetime and thus your guys's lifetimes as well. Um, and so mm-hmm. I wanted to see how we would try to rescue that project. And what was interesting to me is that how, how little of it he was able to rescue. And mm-hmm. I think it just shows how um, sort of modern American liberalism is set a little adrift right now. It doesn't have a guiding idea, a, a, a goalpost. It doesn't know what to do. Can can? But before you say that, because I I need I need you to explain to people exactly what you mean by that. What is the classic ideology of liberalism that Barry so freaking stringently is loyal to, and why do you believe that it's not ascendant right now, that it's actually in steep decline? Yeah, so I th- I'd say two things to find modern liberalism. Like I said before, a skepticism of mass politics. And along with that comes an obsession with technocratic governance that is ruled by experts yes. uh, and, yes. and, uh, and the process. Uh, so that's one. And then two, also a little bit of what I said before, is the idea that the world is so dangerous that you can't have too large change, that you can't uh, pursue change too quickly. That change has to be moderate and that compromise is by definition the wise choice. Um, And this is why you get all of these recent um, claims against so-called polarization and things along those lines with the idea being that moderation, regardless of like what the sides are actually saying, is the necessary wise path forward. And I think that's not ascendant anymore. Basically, one just sees it with the election of Trump and the election, uh, sorry, the success of Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that the, these right. large, like, <laughs> mass democratic movements suggest that there's a, a, a loss of faith in the liberal idea that governance should be left to the experts and outside of the hands of ordinary people. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear, right? If you look at the past 30 years, and especially the past 20, what do you have? Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, uh, the financial collapse of 1999, the financial collapse of 0809, the current financial collapse, the inability to deal with the pandemic, um, you know, the extraordinary inequality, the fact that Jeff Bezos owns some ridiculous percentage of American wealth. I mean, it's very clear that the experts have failed um, and liberals 
interestingly enough, don't seem to really accept that. And, and that's what it was, I think, expressing. Yeah. To me, the, the, the key, the key paragraph in, in your piece, which is in Jacobin, it's called don't trust the process. Uh, I encourage everyone to, to find it. The key paragraph is a promised land, which is Barack Obama's book is undeniably frustrating. The book adopts a circular form. Obama claims his horizon is the left wing position, meaning progress, blah, 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 whatever details, how any particular goal was impossible to achieve and argues that his compromise solution was therefore a small but necessary victory on the road to progress. That's Obamaism to me in a nutshell. Um, and it's just, and, and the sort of ideological project of Obama, his cadres, you know, all his, his staff, everyone is to reiterate that point over and over and over again. We wanted good things that you want. We just couldn't do it. We did the best we could. And shut up about it, you naive idiot. <laughs> you know? right. And that's the thing. You see it in like Pob Save America. Yeah. Right? Those guys think any criticism from the left is just idiotic. That 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 it is totally beyond the the uh, beyond the pale of any sort of actual politics. So what they do, and I think you saw this throughout the Obama administration, is they essentially give up before negotiating begins. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a lesson that it comes through repeatedly um, in the book. Yeah. I- <sighs> Man, I, what fascinated me, and again, because like people don't realize how right wing our government is, our politics are like they are ex- so extremely right wing in the sense of this: when a Republican like Donald Trump gets into office, he either appoints a right somebody from the right wing, or he appoints a wing nut. He does not say, "Let me go find." the most reasonable person from Barry's fucking administration and stick them in there and put my run-of-the-mill right-wingers in there and maybe try to squeeze in a fucking couple of wing nuts in there too. No, he says I'm either going right-wing or I'm going wing nut. I'm not doing anything else, like ever. That never happens. But Barry gets in there and he says, Leon Panetta... From George Bush's administration, come on down. We got a big job for you at the CIA. How the fuck does that make any sense whatsoever? I I, I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way it makes sense is that he didn't really want to change things. I think Barack Obama was ultimately an institutionalist. And what I mean by that is that he believed in the institutions of American government. And why I believe that is he says it in a lot of his earlier books and he recounts it here, but I think he really did feel like disconnected as a child. Um, Like he's moving to Indonesia. He's a black guy in a heavily white state with a white mother and white grandparents essentially raising him. I think he uh, genuinely felt like he didn't belong. And at some point he's also like super ambitious and super smart. And at some point in college, I think, he essentially began to identify his own personal success with the success of the United States. So every time mm. he wrote his, the very rise, Obama, I think Obama thinks his very rise is proof validates, of the concept. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Validates <laughs> American governance. Yeah. And, and it's he, literally the personal is political. Yeah. And, but the, the funny thing, or not the funny thing, I guess the mystifying thing for me about Obama is like, like you mentioned, he grew up a good chunk of his life in Indonesia very shortly after the United States participated in, actively participated in a genocide there that killed between half a million and maybe even up to a million people. Um, people here don't know about that genocide because we don't talk about it. We talk about the genocides that 
the bad people did, not the genocides that we did. Um, and Indonesia was a very close ally of the United States um, after the genocide of 1965. Um, I encourage everyone to go up and just look it up, <laughs> the genocide of 1965. Um, I read a book about it this year by Vincent Bevins called The Jakarta Method um, that describes it in great detail. Um, so, uh, And Obama is aware of this. He is aware of this event. He knows it happened. He's not ignorant to it. He's a very smart guy. And he had personal experience with people who were in and around it um, and who suffered from it. Um, and and I just find it, you know, how can you square that peg, right? How can you square that in your head that the United States could do something like killing a million people or at least helping it, uh, helping that process while still seeing the United States as the sort of indispensable nation, this bastion of right. goodness that is that is kind of worth um yeah, worth fighting for in in some way. I mean, I I get that he his own personal narrative is 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 both the extremes of the American kind of idea in some way in that it is true that, you know, in France it's very difficult to manage to imagine a black Muslim guy. I'm not saying Obama's Muslim, but um, you know, there's a lot of black Muslims in in, in France. Um, uh, becoming the prime minister, it's it's very difficult to imagine. Right. Um, yeah. Even though France is quote unquote more progressive than the United States, while at the same time it's impossible to imagine um, these days France. Part well, I'm actually not, that's not that's not exactly true. But you know, the, the, participating in mass slaughter on the scale that the United States is engaged in regularly uh regularly today. as part of its imperial management i mean right. and just to un uh, underline obama moves to indonesia in 1966 right a year you know, after the, the year after and his mother i believe i think she's working for a private development corporation his mother is an ma in anthropology from the university of hawaii and she works for these private development groups which is also interesting but i think obama basically and he he has a lot of these sor sorts of formulations in the book where he says like i know the u.s did horrible shit but like everyone else would also do horrible shit, you know, and ultimately we were, we were in it for the greater good. And I think this, there's this, um, and I think it's hard to pinpoint, but there's this sort of like Protestant millenarianism to Obama, um, that he really thinks that the United States is sort of out to save the world in, in a real sense. And that if they don't do it, somebody, someone else with more nefarious intentions will, you know, first Russia, uh, the Soviet union, then, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalism, quote unquote, and now China. And so I think he has a view of international relations that, you know, which is very much from the 1930s, which is that it's always a war of all against all. And the best you could do is these sorts of ameliorative programs. But it's it's something that I think he probably just doesn't think about that much um, because it just goes to the heart of his worldview in a very negative way. Yeah. Yeah, and you notice, and you notice when he's talking about this collaboration of ideas and the process and, you know, this idea of deliberative, you know, sort of <laughs> idea brainstorming, you know, just the, this fake shit that, that um, we're going to get in a room and all these bright people are going to have all these ideas and via just a long, um, you know, process, we're going to iron out the best form of all of these ideas, but somehow no left ideas ever make it into that discussion. I, I find that to be the Hawks get their, their say. Um, the, the Hawks always get their say, no matter what, right? Like no pacifist ever gets a word in edgewise with these people. And yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I sorry, mean, better you. 
No, well, I just want to I want to reemphasize that point because the, as you know, as much as we criticize Obama within the kind of national security establishment world, he is kind of on the left spectrum of that incredibly yes. like narrow yes, spectrum. He is, he is on the le- like he is kind of on the dovish as crazy as as it is to think mm-hmm. about, he is kind of on the dovish dovish side of the what's acceptable in the national security establishment but he brags in your like he's as you outlined in your piece he brags in his memoir about surrounding his administration with a sort of team of rivals you know which is like the most annoying idea that has sort of metastasized in in american political culture because of that doris kearns goodwin's book about uh abraham lincoln um in that he was like i wanted people to challenge my deepest held assessments about what i believed but of course that was only to his right, right. you know know getting people who are way more hawkish than him like hillary clinton uh like bob gates it's crazy what he george w bush's secret yeah. secretary of defense you know was his secretary of defense as well um he would never uh what you know hire someone like you or Noam chomsky or right. you know someone who is a critic of u.s empire or even even not even like a critic of u.s empire but like generally kind of a pacifist someone who's like Maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, and it's just it's just a fascinating kind of worldview um, on how he sees what's acceptable in the sort of political spectrum. Like he is on the left wing version, the left wing extreme of political acceptability, which is why, um, as you point out, he thought a figure like Lula da Silva, the, the president of Brazil, of Brazil, was kind of a ridiculous figure to him. You know, a, a person who like, you know, as Michael Brooks, uh, uh, our, our, our good friend, um, sort of repeated over and over again, is probably the most successful president in the 21st century by lifting millions of people out of poverty. Obama makes fun of him in in his memoir, just sees him as a ridiculous figure. So it, it is just kind of it's it's a fascinating portrait of what's acceptable thought in America. And I think though, just to uh, comment on Lula for a second, I think that's also related to Obama's faith in meritocracy and technocracy because he specifically attacks Lula for being like a quote unquote Tammany Hall boss. And what he meant yeah. by that was like giving out patronage to different corporate groups. And I don't mean corporate in like yeah, corporations. A corrupt union leader. Yeah, basically a corrupt union leader. And I, I remember thinking like, if only Obama gave patronage like a Tammany Hall boss. You know, like maybe uh, it wouldn't be uh, so unequal. So I think it's also his faith in this sort of technocratic governance thing, which is so crucial to understanding the liberal meritocratic mind. And I think that's really critical. Um, And just one more thing on the Obama and the team of rivals. He even says something which I found like really insult, like most of the book he's not insulting, but there's a couple of times where he like basically just insults the left. And it's in this discussion of the team of rivals. And he goes, I was proud. Basically, he says, I was proud of people on my team, even the leftiest among them knew that the United States needed to govern the world and like had only disdain for left-wing critics who made their careers criticizing America as like the font of everything bad in the world. First, I wish we were able to make careers. As you guys know, like this is mostly free labor. Um, But two, it just shows like the disdain he has for these criticisms, right? Why take someone like Hillary Clinton seriously and someone like Noam Chomsky not seriously, given the record, the actually existing record of the United States? You know, like why, uh, why take Bob Gates seriously, who oversaw, who was a part of the establishment of disaster after disaster from Lebanon to uh, Iraq to Afghanistan. I mean, all of these various things and not Noam Chomsky, who's basically been saying, don't do it for 50 years. It doesn't make sense, (laughs) you know, in terms of like your rational logic. So it's just shows that the strictures of liberalism are really, really problematic. Man, <laughs> I, I do want to get into um, the sort of process and just the flawed nature of it, right? And 
and why it's like a process is only so good and so has only has so much value in how much shit it gets right. <laughs> like if you're constantly right. coming yeah. to the wrong decisions, your process is is worthless. Like it's worth as much as the gum on the bottom of my shoe. In so much as like it like that you should be using it at all, right? Um I just I just find it interesting that Barry can come to the conclusion constantly that the process even though it always came with these whack ass results was the right one, right? Like I don't understand why doing nothing at all or some some level of incrementalism in and of itself was virtuous rather than rather than shoving it down and 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 after watching particularly after watching Donald Trump just completely dispense with all of your fucking norms and your rules and the republic did not burn down bro like he proved it he proved it to all of us that like behaving like an oaf basically doing what you want and even though like they the funny thing again is that they didn't do anything but the big tax like of course with you know the migrant kids and all of that that's horrible the jailing of the kids that's disgusting we know that but like policy wise they just did one thing how can Barry say um <laughs> that his dedication to the process and the rules and the norms and all of this fucking shit that him and his boys want to circle jerk to is right after watch at knowing like no we know us knowing that this book came out after the fucking Trump administration. So this is I have a big theory. I'm I'm actually writing a book on this right now so it's in my mind. He's Barack Obama is very much a product of the end of history era. And so so people just who may not know in 1989 a very famous um, political theorist named Francis Fukuyama published an essay titled The End of History. And he essentially argued that the Soviet Union's collapse demonstrated that liberal capitalist democracy was the only viable political form under the conditions of modern times. Um, and so what Fukuyama also argued was that because politics, questions of politics, of will, who gets what and when, had essentially been answered. And the only thing left to do was to like make technocratic expert decisions that manipulate the system in an effective way. And Obama is very much a product of this era. And so what that means is that when he was coming of political age, there was a definite, um, within the Democratic Party establishment, a downplaying of, of political will and literally political power. Now, this is ironic because what happens in 1994, um, I believe it's 94, is Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And that really, or maybe it's 95, and that really initiates the sort of Republican assault like this is nothing but power right like this is mitch mcconnell is is he just gives a shit about power you know and so it's ironic as the democrats embrace this sort of powerless ideology the republican party embraces sort of powerful ideology which is why fucking merrick garland is not on the supreme court which is absolutely crazy i mean that just uh, it's the apotheosis of sort of this total failure of politics but obama has so identified himself with this politics is such a product of this very peculiar historical moment that to deny that is to deny everything he is. And not only that, everything that has led to his success, which is to mm. become the first black president in the United States, which is an enormous deal. And so I think it's really interesting, this sort of personal and political and how they intermix in Barack Obama's ideas and his life story. Yeah. 
And the the other episode that was fascinating in your review was the, and it's something that I remember being obsessed with at the time, was this sort of soft coup that was attempted by the military uh, while Obama was in power because he kind of, again, like we said, he was on the dovish side of the acceptable um, discourse around issues of national security in which, you know, Mike McMullen, Stanley McChrystal, the sort of bigwigs in the army basically colluded together to undermine his orders, essentially. And um, Obama, like you talk about how Obama kind of stood up to that, but then did whatever, all, all the things that they wanted to do anyway. You know, like he, he kind of, re- he, was, he was more offended about the process being defamed than whatever it was that the process was supposed to um, produce, I guess, is the, is the right way of putting it. So like in the examples you put is, you know, the surge in Afghanistan in which he sent 30,000 troops uh, to Afghanistan um, it, in, the, in the Libya intervention, which again is probably the maybe the darkest stain on Obama. You know, there was something that he it was a decision that he made um, that basically destroyed a country. I mean, it's it's you know, re, reinvigorated the slave trade in in Libya. Um, and that's a product of Obamaism. Um, but that that episode of like, can you describe what happened with the generals and, and Mike McMullen and McChrystal and how they kind of sought to undermine his authority as president. He's just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like he stood up to them, but then he just did whatever they said. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's basically over how many troops to increase in Afghanistan. And what happened was that Mullen, the head of the chiefs of staff, David Petraeus, who I believe at the time was head of central command, uh, and Stanley McChrystal, who had become essentially head of forces in Afghanistan, wanted to uh, adopt a particular strategy. Um, And so they talked about it with Obama. Obama like basically initiated a study process. And in the midst of that study process, they essentially talked to the press and were like, we need to do this, blah, blah, blah. And generals aren't supposed to do that because according to the constitution uh it's the president the commander-in-chief who makes political decisions of which grand strategy and things like that is one um and so obama essentially got really mad and he upbraided them uh he brought them into their office and he said don't you know don't do this again and they turned around with their tails between their legs but in the end he he wound up giving them the numbers that they wanted so as nando was saying what um, it was again. It was the, pro- the, the sort of denigration of the process that offended him most, unless the sort, uh, unless the actual numbers of what they were trying to do. And of course, I, I think people need to remember that Obama did wind up firing McChrystal after the journalist Mike Hastings uh, published an article in Rolling Stone um, in which the, the general and some of his subordinates insulted. Not, I don't think they actually insulted Obama, but they insulted Biden and some other people around him. And then, interestingly enough, Mike Hastings died in a car crash. Yes, um, it's a so, very, yeah, very man, no, incredibly suspicious. Yeah. Um, yes, it's, it's an it's incredibly, incredibly suspicious, suspicious episode. Uh, incredibly suspicious episode. Um, so uh, I just wanted to, to just bring that out. Like, it, it, there's a lot of very strange things sort of surrounding the national security state, and I just wanted to underline Mike Hastings' his, uh, death. You know, the part of it, <laughs> and you guys, <laughs> and you guys kind of got into it with Mike Hastings, but I think the part of it that it's kind of hard to have. Um, a conversation about, especially on a public forum like this, without veering into just rank conspiracy, because let's face it, we can't prove so much of this stuff is. Yeah. These guys, the military gets so much money for so much shit that we don't have any idea what they're using it for. The idea that somebody would come out against them in any and threaten their power in any meaningful way and not be dealt with um, seems impossible. 
right? Um, and, and, you know, this stuff comes up all the time where people sort of say, like, you know, the reason why a president can't come in there and just say completely reform the CIA, who's been failing at their job for almost 100 years. This is like, like out of the OSS, um, World War II, comes the CIA. They have been stinking up the joint since its inception. It's important for y'all to know this. And yet, they remain one of the most powerful entities in the world, right? If not the most. Um, the idea being that, like, sure, President Bernie, you can come in and be President Bernie, but eventually, we're going to get some shit on you. <laughs> like, eventually, we're going to find a way to screw you, if not outright kill you. That's, you know, that's the idea that some people have about the sort of, um, you know, the deep state, if you will, um, just the military um, just the intractable nature of the military and why it's impossible for somebody, anybody who one, the most you have is eight years, motherfucker. I've been here for 20. You have at best eight years. I don't, I don't gotta listen to your dumb ass. Are you crazy? Right? Like that dynamic makes it so that it does undercut somebody like a Barack Obama who wants to come in and be like, bro, how many times can these guys just fuck up and still not just keep their jobs, but get more like what, you know? So I think that's something that definitely needs to be addressed in just the sense, just the nature of the military power in this country. It's so intractable. Um, and you know, even if Barry wanted to, I personally think he'd be putting his life in danger, if not every single demon he's ever fucking had, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, would be coming to the fore if he tried to fuck with these people. And one thing that's important, I think, to understand about, like, the CIA and the American security state is that there's not, like, a singular sort of locus of power. These things are distributed no. yep. all yeah. over mm -hmm. the world in a bunch of different institutions. And actually... It's like Al Qaeda. <laughs> well, there, there are there are sort of like different locuses in the domestic and <laughs> abroad, you know, and within the CIA and within the State Department, blah blah blah. But um, I think, and this is actually a real problem. Was I think you're exactly right when I, when I was like on the, the the team that was talking about Bernie's foreign policy. One of the most important things that I said was like, we don't even know how these things actually operate. If Bernie was going to win, he needed to you know uh, create a bunch of task forces which just like locate where does money go. Where is power located, right? Because the Defense Department is budgeted at around $750 billion. The State Department has a budget less than $100 billion. So it's an enormous amount of money that just goes to defense contractors, to the CIA, to special programs that the president 90% um, of the time is unaware of. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation with not, an, with not an, easy, uh, an easy solution. And the crazy thing is just, uh, just to put on my historian BD for a second is that the people think the CIA is so cool because of what they did in their first six years. In 1948, they successfully made sure the communists didn't win the elections in France and in Italy. They overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. And in 1954, they overthrew Yacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. And since then, it's essentially been failure after failure after failure, but they're still Nothing but have this mystique about them from like the also, first seven you years. To, you, also, you have to understand we're being propagandized all the time about the CIA. All the time. Right? Like Jack Bauer, um, fucking Jack Jason Bourne, Jack Ryan, like these super... These super soldiers, just hyper intelligent, hyper competent, can fuck up anybody with their bare hands. Also, marksmen, snipers, also speak eight languages. It's yeah, they're bullshit. mostly schlubby fat guys. It's sitting fucking at a desk. lies. When the Iranian evolution happened, they had agents in there who didn't speak Farsi. Yeah. 
This fucking yeah. CIA, they're geniuses. They had agents in fucking Iran who don't speak Farsi. Same with Iraq. <laughs> like, they didn't have Arabic speakers. I mean, like, this was a big thing uh, right after the invasion. They didn't have, like, a, a cohort of Arabic speakers to how really can do you these things. Un- how can you begin to understand from somebody, like, how can you, if you can't even communicate with the people who have the most knowledge and you're the fucking CIA, I, I can't even I, like whatever anyway the cia as hyper competent hyper amazing they have this sheen of respectability because we've been being propagandized since i can't like since got the 70s at, at the very fucking latest you know what i'm saying like about these pop cultural cia figures which is just bullshit it doesn't even square with the reality it was a bunch of fucking harvard dudes you know flying into fucking laos like what? <laughs> like what? That doesn't even make any fucking sense. Like this is actually the CIA, you know? Um so yeah, but but that I'm glad but we have to acknowledge those points cuz you know, I think this episode might come off as Oh, we're making Barry because we fucking we kill Barry pretty much on a weekly basis in here. Um, but oh, you're blaming the whole world's problems on Barry. It's like no, but like when the guy comes out and defends some of the most heinous acts that have ever been perpetuated by this com- um country, specifically the shit with Saudi and and Yemen, like that shit is just unconscionable, dude. Like you can even do your little fucking um. Gaddafi, like, oh, he was about to murder the innocents and all of that. Like, what Saudi Arabia is carrying out over there is unconscionable. Like, there is no defense of it. And we fucking full-throated embrace of that nastiness that they're still doing over there, by the way. And we... Right, like... And just quickly, we embrace it just so that to balance against Iran, right? That's the reason. (laughs) We don't want Iran to take over the Middle East, and so we fund Saudi Arabia. And so people have to ask themselves if that's a good enough reason to support horrible actions in Yemen. I mean, like, that's that's the stated reason for it. We don't even use the oil. Just so people know, Europe gets the oil, and that's becoming less and less and less. So it's not even about pumping our economy, which I don't think is the right thing, but a lot of people do. It's to make sure Iran doesn't conquer the Middle East. And people have to start asking themselves if they're in favor of things like that. And that's a serious question. Man. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. DB, <laughs> you were excellent as usual. Thank you for giving us the time and more importantly, giving us the knowledge and just, you know, sort of grounding this in context and making people understand the different factions and the different interests involved when these decisions get made, right? Um, and so thank you for coming on today. I think you were fucking incredible, bro. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, Happy to do it whenever. (laughs) All right. We will talk soon. We will see you guys next week. Make sure you're subscribed to everything Count the Dings, of course. The Bomb Feed, the Count the Dings Feed, Cinephobe. Of course, make sure you're doing all of that. And if you can, please become a patron at at patreon.com backslash Count the Dings. We appreciate all the support. It's how we push out these shows. Um, Fernando, for DB, I'm out of here. Peace.